Lehman Bard is more than a visionary. He's a genius. Not in the apple bar genius sense. Rather, he's a literal genius. Lehman is a professor, inventor, and entrepreneur who operates in the space between dreams and reality. A down-to-earth guy with a hugely positive demeanor, you might not expect Lehman to be the smiling face behind the mathematical algorithms that are changing the world that we live in every day, but he is. My whole life has been this. I just enjoy creating algorithms and inventing things. You know, having a good idea does not mean a good company. You should have realistic expectations. You should understand that this is gonna be all consuming. I'm Mike Kading, and welcome to Zero to Unicorn, where we dive into the lives of the unique visionaries among us that have made a billion dollar impact in the world. I'm incredibly excited to have Lehman on the podcast, so let's dive right in. Lehman, how does a mathematician get involved in something like cryptocurrency? Oh, the magic is math. So from the beginning, I have just always enjoyed solving math problems. I just do this for fun. I have a long list of problems I've been working on for decades, uh, literally decades for some of them. And some of them I'm pretty sure I'll never solve. I just enjoy working on math problems. And so around 2012, I said, here's a really cool math problem. Could you get a bunch of computers to come to an agreement fast and be extremely secure at the same time? Just a math problem, not in purpose. It's just, it's one of those problems that for some reason grabs onto me. Some, most problems don't, but some problems just grab onto me. And then for years and years, I'll work on them. And so, you know, that's maybe in 2012. By 2015, I had gone through many rounds of picking up the problem and working on it and trying it this way and this way and finally convincing myself it is impossible. You can either be secure or fast. You really can't do both at once. It's just, it's just impossible that I hadn't quite made a math proof that it's impossible. So at it, it's not done. Just thinking it's too hard isn't enough. You have to prove that it's impossible. And so I kept, I would just put it aside, but it would come back and gnaw at me. And you know, it, just, it wants to be played with. And so I'd pick it up and play with it. And I would convince myself again that it's impossible. Each time I was learning a little bit more about it. In 2015, I realized, wait a second. If we just send messages to each other, but every time we send a message, we just add two little notes to that message, two little hashes. I remember the, it says the last message I created and the last message I received from someone. That's it. Just add those two little notes. Then you can then solve the entire agreement problem with no other communication whatsoever. And that was what I realized in 2015. So it's a math solution, uh, just to a problem I was solving just because it was a math, fun math problem. Mance Harmon and I, who have been starting companies, well, we've been working together since 1994, and we have been starting companies since 2000. Uh, we realized this is something that could actually make people's lives better. This is actually something that could change the world. It is a useful thing and a powerfully useful thing. And so then we started the companies for it so that people could use it. And so we started Swirls to sell it as a private ledger, a private blockchain. We got some traction there to show that it works. And then in 2016, we decided, okay, let's make a public ledger out of this. And we got our council and we were off to the races. I love how it starts with a problem Lehman just wanted to solve. He attacked it, cracked it, and then made it into a useful solution for society. I wanted Lehman to look back now. Did he always have this tenacity for just solving interesting problems? <laughs> yes. Um, so I don't know if it's tenacity or just obsession, but 
<laughs> whatever it is. When I was a teenager, I had a TRS-80, really old computer, and it had graphics, really bad graphics. It didn't even have a command to draw a line on the screen. So I learned assembly language. I could make it draw lines on the screen, but the assembly language didn't even have a command to divide two numbers. And so I invented an algorithm for drawing lines by adding one number modulo a second number. And every time you move up the line, you either add or you add and then modulo. And every time it wraps around, you go up a little bit. I, I invented that algorithm for drawing lines, which I later learned is the famous algorithm that has people's names attached to it. But yeah, I didn't know that. I was a teenager. So I, I just did that because it was fun. And then I said, hey, if you had this cool algorithm, what else could you do? So I invented the same thing for drawing circles with no division, just addition and modular um, arithmetic. And then I said, oh, could you do sine waves and cosine waves? And so I expanded it to that. If I kept going, I would have come up with a difference engine idea that Babbage had, but I didn't. I stopped there. But yes, this is the kind of thing I did as a teenager. Uh, my whole life has been this. I just enjoy creating algorithms and inventing things. As a teenager before college, I did this thing I told you about. I did some speech synthesis and was starting on speech recognition. I did a game. Then I went off to college and I was kind of busy with my day job at that point. So I was a computer science major and a double E major. Um, eventually I got smart and went just down to one major, but uh, I started off being two majors, uh, double E in computer science. What I discovered is that I like all the digital parts of double E, but the analog parts are boring. So I took every course they had for the digital parts that I dropped the major. Uh, but I was a computer science major. I took, I think, every elective they offered. And I would spend hours in the library just reading uh, journals for computer science because it's so cool. Uh, I remember reading one about neural networks. This was this brand new thing. It couldn't even learn at that point. These were neural networks that couldn't even learn. And I was so excited. I thought, this is the future. And that's what I saw. They got a PhD in. And then, you know, today it's, that's just controlling the, the whole world. Uh, but I just got really excited about these things. So I think as an undergrad, I didn't invent anything. I don't think I had time. I remember writing a program to draw three-dimensional mazes. That was kind of fun. Um, and I did one to draw fractals. That was kind of fun, but I didn't invent anything. Uh, but I was trying to learn. Because I remember as a kid thinking, I, I invent things, but then I discover other people have already discovered it. I really want to get to the point where when I invent something, it's at the edge of what we know. And it's actually a new thing. And then that's happened a bunch of times since then. But that's really what I wanted as a kid. I wanted to get to the edge of what's known so that when I invent something, it's actually new. Working on the edge of the unknown. I don't know if we can really comprehend this thought fully. See, Lehman operates in an area which is changing the world as we know it. For most people, reading scientific, computer-based journals for fun, well, that actually sounds terrible. But for Lehman, it's pure, unadulterated excitement. It's like the proverbial kid in the candy store. But did Lehman always have this heart and drive? Or was it built over time? I remember trying to invent new kinds of squirt guns and trying to invent other things. I remember as a very young child, really wanting to create. I couldn't think of what to create. I just wanted to create something that's cool and intricate, but elegant and simple while being complex. And I just... I just really wanted to do that. I couldn't think of anything. I remember trying it. I tried, uh, I heard that you could mix vinegar and baking soda, get something cool. So I went and got every chemical in the house I could find and mixed them all together to see if anything cool would happen. Spoiler alert, nothing cool happens. It's just vinegar and baking soda is the only one. But I just really wanted to create something cool. Next, I was desperate to know 
how long did Lehman have to wait after college before he could start creating cool things of his own? Yeah. So right after college, I went right into graduate school and I was working on neural networks for reinforcement learning, which is where the computer learns by trial and error how to accomplish something. And uh, the, the recent stuff that you've seen where uh, now a computer can beat the world Go champion, but that computer taught itself everything just by playing games against itself for a day. All they had to do was give it the rules of the game. And then an improved version of it, you just let it watch a few games and now it knows the rules. You don't even have to tell it the rules. And that same brain with no changes also teaches itself to be the world's best chess player and to beat all the Atari video games and to have a robot be able to pick up a piece of cloth and fold it. One brain, one program does all those. That's what I was doing as a PhD at the end of the 90s. But as a master's student at the beginning of the 90s, I was working on that. And I was so into this. It felt like it was fundamentally important. And over the next few years, I learned of a few discoveries that have been made. And I said, you know, this is really going to change the world. Uh, reinforcement learning, you're learning some of those things. And then also um, deep neural networks. We called them convolutional neural networks. And now those two things, along with two others that were invented five years ago, are just totally changing everything. Uh, but I, get, I was doing that a long time ago, 20 years ago. You really need a lot of computational power to do very, very cool things. Um, in the early 90s, people were able to do, on the computers of the time, a deep neural network recognizing handwritten digits. So they got from, from the post office a bunch of photographs of zip code digits that people had written with their hand, and they were labeled uh, of what the number was supposed to be. Some people have very bad handwriting, and they were able to learn it. What got me excited, though, wasn't that. It was that at the time, the main thing people did is they would handcraft programs that would take your image and turn it into a list of features. You'd figure out where the lines are, where are the curves, where are the corners, where are they in relation to each other? And then finally, as a last step, you might have a neural network try to recognize the number from all the features you, you wrote. What got me excited about the deep neural networks is that you gave it nothing and it invented its own features and it was better than the handcrafted features. And I said, okay, People always say AI is not intelligent. Yeah, I know. But this is something that has a hint of intelligence in it. There's a spark here of intelligence. I got very excited about that. Um, actually, 1986 is when Backprop was invented. Neural networks basically were invented then. There were stuff before that. But it really is, it was uh, Ruhlhart Hinton and Williams invented neural networks. The third name there is Williams. He was my advisor uh, for my master's degree. That was kind of cool. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> So I guess we got on this call to talk about blockchain. But you know, AI is cool too. And I spent the first half of my life doing AI and then I did blockchain. So I went to the Air Force Academy. So for four years, I was a college student, but I was also an Air Force um, active duty, not officer, but cadet. And so I did my computer science degree. That's why it took four years. I couldn't do it early. I'd already had pretty much a full year of college and high school and I couldn't, couldn't get done early. So I had to spend four years. So I had lots of extra electives. That's why I took all the comp sci electives and I took all the fun parts of double E. Um, some people disagree on what's fun and what's not fun, but for me, I took all the fun parts. Um, but then as soon as I graduated, I was allowed, it was very kind of the Air Force. They only let a few people go to a master's degree right away. But if you get a fellowship, I got a Draper fellowship, then they'll allow you to go get a master's degree. So I got a master's degree right away out of college. And then I had to work for two years, um, two years, yes, two years in a research laboratory, three years, 91 to 94 in a research laboratory for the Air Force, doing reinforcement learning, the very thing that I'd been working on for those two years. Uh, the Draper Lab was actually working on an Air Force contract. I just moved to the other side of the table. I was doing research there. 
And so I was inventing things with reinforcement learning. I invented, I remember inventing one thing that later I talked to a, a famous professor at MIT and he was shocked I didn't have a PhD. He thought this thing I had written was a PhD thesis or it was just you know, a paper I wrote. Um, I, so I published lots of papers and I met Mance there. And Mance and I were doing research together and publishing papers together there in that research lab. Then I went off to the Air Force Academy and I got to be a teacher for two years. Um, I love being a professor. That is so much fun. And so I got to do that for two years. And I was still talking to Mance by email and phone and we were doing research together and publishing papers together. And then after that, I went off to another Air Force job where they called me a systems engineer, uh, but I was, my job title was, I mean, my um, career field was computer engineer, which means computer scientist, but they called me a systems engineer. That was interesting. Then I went to school again uh, for three years. I'm sorry, I said those backwards. Wrong order. After I taught, I went back to school immediately. And then I went off to this job. And then I finally went back to be a professor. And I was a full professor at the Air Force Academy. Uh, and then I retired in 2009. And my brother tells me that I suck at being retired. Here, I had to stop Lehman before he glossed right past it. But Lehman just mentioned that he worked for the Air Force. This I had to know more about. It was interesting. Um, I have to be grateful. The Air Force let me get all three of my degrees. Actually, it was the fourth one they gave me, too. Um, yeah, so when you go to Air Command and Staff College and they give you a Master's of Military Arts and Science. It's a nine-month course. Uh, but they, they also I got three computer science degrees. So I got my undergrad, my master's, and my PhD. Uh, it was kind of them to let me do that. And it was uh, kind of them then to let me work in labs. So I've been in a lab or teaching or in school uh, you know, all the years I was in the Air Force, 24 years. The Air Force was incredibly nice to me. And this really is true. Usually people go wherever the Air Force tells them to go. They take whatever job the Air Force tells them to take. Rarely, maybe once in your career, you get to do a by name request where you tell the Air Force, I want to go do that job. And the people at that job request you and the Air Force says, okay, since you asked for him, we'll let you go there. Every job I ever had was a by name request in my whole Air Force career. It's unheard of. I've never heard of that. And it was just very kind. The Air Force let me go where I wanted every single time because the people there requested me and I got to go. Uh, so the Air Force career was fantastic. Imagine this. Imagine you had a blackboard and you could put marks on it. And the attacker can also put marks on it, but they can't erase marks. It's an OR channel. You and I could agree we're only going to put our marks at certain spots on the board. And then I put one, I put a mark in each spot where I want a one, and I don't put a mark where I want a zero. But you and I need a secret. Because if the attacker knew what our magic spots were, he could come along and just put a mark in every magic spot and, and he would have jammed us. Instead, though, I could take the first bit of my message and use that to pick one of two places on the board to put my first mark, and I'll put a mark there. And then I take the first two bits of my message and use that to choose a random spot on the board and put a mark there. And then I take the first three bits of my message and put a mark there. You'll end up having a message where there's a mark for every single bit of the message. It's not ones and zeros, it's a mark for every single bit. And you can decode it by looking at, well, there's only two spots the first bit could be. I'll see which one has a mark. Okay, that one has a mark. Now there's only two bits for the second place that the second bit could be. I'll see which one has the mark. And so you just kind of fall down this tree and you fall the board. The attacker could come in and put in extra marks, but fine, you'll just follow both branches for a while. And if he wants to jam me, he's going to have to put a thousand times as many branches as I put, and he'll have to use a thousand times as much energy. We win. There's been a number of universities where people have implemented it, and I don't know, um, I'm not aware of it actually being used in the wild right now which is unfortunate. 
Um, more recently, I, I invented a way to make it doable without special hardware. You could use a, an off-the-shelf uh, SDR, a software-definable de radio. And uh, this is really elegant. So you just use sine waves. You don't have to use weird shapes. And you can use an off-the-shelf SDR. And you can still get that thousand-fold improvement where the attacker has to use a thousand times the energy as I do, or he has to be a screw of a thousand times closer to you than I am to jam you. Uh, so it's really practical now. And there were some students who built that system too. Uh, I'm not aware of any commercialization of it, but it's all open source. It's all free, just like Hashgraph is open source and all our code on Hedera is free. Uh, all the things I've invented are open source and are free right now and people can go off and use them. Now, obviously, a good portion of Lehman's work with the Air Force cannot be disclosed, but it got me wondering, is being able to share insights important to Lehman? What I really like to do, well, I like to do two things. I like to make something cool and they show everybody the really thing that's cool. So you want it to be open source and publish it right away. I also want to make the world better. Now, there are some cases where you make the world better by keeping it closed and just holding it close to the chest. But in a lot of ways, you make the world better if you let everybody make the world better. So you give it away to everybody. So I think at this point, everything I've created in my life um, is, is out there and people can use it. Hey, it's Mike. Let's beat the banks at their own game. Traditional banks don't have great interest rates, but they charge businesses like Norhart higher rates, and they keep all the profits. Why don't we cut out the middleman and connect directly, thus leaving more for both of us? Invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and get more than you ever could at a bank? This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. So before we move on, Lehman said he loved being a professor. I wanted to know what that entailed. Well, I like to teach. Um, so I got to go into the classroom every day and teach. Uh, at the Air Force Academy, there are, so you know, universities are either teaching schools or research schools. People usually talk about them that way, based on what the emphasis is. The Air Force Academy is very much a teaching school. In fact, it's an undergraduate-only institution, but it was one of the top-rated ones in the country, uh, the last I checked, uh, because it really puts an emphasis on teaching the students and teaching them well, and it's centered on the students, not on the faculty. Whereas in other universities, it's focused on the faculty. Their job is to do research and they get grants and that's where their paycheck comes from. It's from external people paying them to do research. And the students that are there is slave labor and kind of that's their, their side job. Um, I say that in a negative way. Uh, Carnegie Mellon is a research institution, but they were incredibly kind to the students. My advisor let me graduate quickly. He was a wonderful person, Andrew Moore, just the best guy in the world. Um, so they really were nice to the students, but they were very much a research school. That's what paid the bills was the research. That was the focus. But when I got to teach at the Air Force Academy, I was a professor there and we were very much student focused. So I had an incredibly large teaching schedule. We had no TAs, no teaching assistants. I taught everything. I graded everything. Um, you know, I got to be a visiting professor once somewhere when we had a TA do grading. That is such a great invention. Everybody should have TAs to do their grading. I hate grading, uh, but, but I, I did it. I did all the grading and I taught this and I would teach the high level courses. I teach cryptography and AI and other things, but I also taught the introduction, Compsci 101 intro course. I enjoyed that too. 
that you know everyone has to take that and uh, i enjoyed that too i just enjoyed teaching and i did lots of research while i was there uh, so the jam resistance and other things i just did tons of research while i was there if you love what you do you never work a day in your life right it seems like that's Lehman in a nutshell. Yet in 2009, Lehman decided to retire. Now, he doesn't seem like the retiring type. So why does Lehman even entertain this notion? Okay, if you're in the Air Force, retire doesn't mean you stop working. Retire means you don't have a boss in the Air Force telling you what to do. You get to be your own boss. Yes, that is appealing. Uh, so... <laughs> And, and the truth is, if they'd had a, prof a full professor position for a civilian that was open in computer science, I might have just stayed, stayed on um, longer. But, uh, but I, I retired, and then they didn't have any positions. So I was just a research scientist in a lab there, uh, part-time for a while. And then I went off. As I said, even while I was in the Air Force, I was starting companies. That was another thing. I was doing teaching and research and entrepreneurship. So Manson and I have been starting companies since 2000. Uh, and so I was doing that also. I told you, if you give up sleep, it works much better. We're only just scratching the surface of Lehman's story, and yet he has achieved amazing things. But what was the origins of Lehman's first company? Where did that begin? Uh, Trio Security. So do you remember Palm Pilots? Remember way back when? PDA. It was like a cell phone with no phone. And so we had this cool idea in the year 2000 that you could have a PDA and it would log into your computer and websites for you, remember your passwords for you, and you would use some biometrics to get into your PDA and then it would take you somewhere else. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, right. So this is what the iPhone does. Except, of course, phone pilots didn't come with any biometrics. There was no fingerprint reader. There was no camera. There was no camera. So you can't look at your face or your iris or anything else. So I invented a way that you could just write a word in cursive on the screen and it would look at the words you wrote and it would look at exactly how fast your pen was moving on each part of that word and then compare that to something in memory and it could figure out whether you are you or you are an imposter. And we had a really good success rate. Real people would always get in and fake people really had problems, um, couldn't, couldn't fake your signature because even if they saw it on paper, they wouldn't be able to get the speed exactly right. And you might not be signing your name, you might be signing some other word. And we even did a, a deal with a, a car company that did a research project to see, could you detect whether someone is drunk from signing? So, you know, some people are forced by the court to blow into a breathalyzer every time they start their car. They were thinking, hey, maybe they just find their name on the dashboard to start their car. And they found it worked. They could use my matching algorithm to tell me what percent blood alcohol level you have. And it worked pretty well. <laughs> that was fun. That was my first company. That's amazing. Lehman has this tremendous success with his first company. So what's the second one? What's coming next? I'm curious. Blue Wave Security. So, you know, door locks, especially in the early 2000s, um, being able to have a large campus that bought the door locks, so like electronic locks where you have to push numbers to get through the door. How do you change the keys on those? You want the conduit to change periodically. And there were, there were campuses, schools, say, where they would hire a full-time person who did nothing but go around and change the lock combos because after a couple of years of changing all the lock combos, it was time to come back to the first lock and do it again. So it would be a full-time job. And so we had this brilliant idea of you let Wi-Fi, you had the lock connect through Wi-Fi and you can do it remotely. 
Okay, that sounds obvious now. It also sounded obvious then, but the Warlock industry was so far in the Dark Ages. This was a radically new thing. Wow, you're going to have Wi-Fi in this Warlock and be able to remotely touch it. And so we did that. We built that up. We had um, things over, yeah, power over Ethernet and all sorts of interesting things that were involved in this. Um, that company, I think, is still running. But it was it was bought by investors, uh, so it was private equity. It was bought from us also. So it was acquired. Or those companies are both acquired, which is kind of cool. I've got so many questions. How, how does someone balance research, teaching, and being a CTO? Is that even possible? What sort of stress comes with that? There's a lot of things that cause stress in your life, but if you're doing math problems for fun, that's not very stressful. Uh, entrepreneurship can be stressful, certainly, but I think some people are just into that sort of thing, and then it's you know it's a good stress. Uh, teaching is just fun. So I could be completely tired and just um, sick even, have a cough. But if I walk into the classroom, I get this burst of energy, huge endorphin rush for the entire time I'm there. And even after I walk out of the classroom, it'll last for a few hours. And it's not just classrooms. It's anytime I give a talk on a stage, it's this conversation with you right now. You said I seem enthusiastic. Anytime I get to talk, I get a huge surge of energy. So yeah, uh, teaching was not a problem. Training was a problem. So Obviously, Lehman has mastered this world of mathematics and computer science, but now he's running a business. That's a completely different skill set. So how do you go about learning that skill set you need to be an effective manager? So I've always wanted to learn basically anything, everything I can. I want to learn about every area I can. Life's too short to learn everything in the world, but you know, I want to learn as much as I can. Uh, and so I've been working on the entrepreneurial skills since 2000, but I've been working on the leadership skills since 1985. The Air Force kind of emphasizes leadership. They sort of think that's important. Um, and then I've been working on the technical skills since the, my various earliest memories. My, my parents are both math professors. My mom was also a physics professor. Uh, my dad was math and physics. My mom was math. So, you know, I was kind of ruined from an early age. Uh, I just have always been into this stuff. My dad was into computer programming way before anybody else in the world was, and I got into it too then. And yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun. So from my very early age, I've been trying to learn about the technical stuff and the business stuff, but I've also just tried to learn about all the other stuff too. After building a business to the point of selling it to a Fortune 500 company, I had to know what lessons did Lehman learn that he could share with us so that we might be able to follow a similar path. Yeah, I've had a number of talks that I've given about entrepreneurship. Um, you should have realistic expectations. You should understand that this is gonna be all consuming and it really is going to crowd out other things in your life. And you need to make a decision. Is this worth it? Uh, if you have a family, you will end up spending less time with them than you would if you weren't an entrepreneur. And that just is a fact. You should think about it before you do it. If you are willing to do it, you should be the kind of person that doesn't freak out over this just understand that most entrepreneurs fail in their first business and the next nine, but then eventually they succeed. And you should just take that. If I fail, learn from it. And then on the next one, try to do better. And the failure may not even be your fault. This world is hostile to entrepreneurs. So you may fail a whole bunch of companies. Nance and I have been blessed. All of them ended up succeeding, but that's not normal. It's like I got to choose my job in the Air Force for every job. That's not normal. It's just good things that happen to us uh, that we've been blessed that way. But 
but you should understand you're likely to fail, but that's okay. So what? You had fun. Be grateful you had fun and then do it again and do it better and learn everything you can and think about what you're doing to try to learn. You ever heard people say you have to do something for 10,000 hours before you get better? That's an incomplete sentence. You have to do something for 10,000 hours where you're constantly thinking about what you're doing and how to get better at it. Otherwise, you're going to spend 10,000 hours ingraining bad habits and get worse. You have to be thinking about what you're doing. How can I do it better? If you do 10,000 hours of that, you get better. It's an important distinction. So you do the same thing. Try things, but then see what the results were and think about it and ponder what does that mean for what we do next time and learn the lessons from it. Um, also, have some humility. You should be willing to listen to everybody else. Mance and I have always had a very collaborative leadership style, and we also do everything we can to go find people and find out what they think. And then you take all the information from all the people, and then you make a decision. And then as a good leader, you say, now that's the decision. The discussion is over. We're going to execute on it. So don't, don't keep talking. This is now the time to do. But prior to that, you want to get all the inputs from people and talk to them and get the inputs out of them and, and really encourage them to give you inputs and think about it. And it is especially important when you have an idea and then you kind of get all the feedback. Do not go with that because it was your idea. You should never do that. And you, it's a tendency that you need to, to, to resist. Um, even if you think you're good about the area in which, you know, good at the area in which you had the idea, don't think because you had the idea, it's a good idea. Always listen to the others and think deeply about whether, hey, is that better than my idea? If it is, let's switch. Um, those are some of the things that you do in, in leadership. Uh, there's lots of specifics about how do you start a business, and you know, we can talk about all of that. But the general philosophy is try it, do it, do something, and think very carefully before you do it, and then after you do it, learn from what you've done. If you realize you've made a mistake, pivot quickly. In a startup, you might have the luxury of pivoting once. If you try to pivot five times, then you probably go bankrupt. But um, one of the lessons you learn is don't pivot five times. But you, you should be willing to pivot if you realize you're doing the wrong thing. And that's for big things. For little things, you can pivot lots of times. And you should do that. Bigger moments I've had to pivot. So in, um, in the first one, Trio Security, we were trying to sell this thing uh, to consumers. And it was a very big... Uh, challenge to do so. And then we ended up pivoting and partnering with a company that worked with us. And that really worked out well. So they became investors, but they were also working with us and partnering with us to do some things. And then we also were spending lots of time trying to be acquired. And then um, one acquisition that really would have been nice fell through, but then the second one happened almost immediately. Um, actually, I remember the final acquisition happened where we were in talks about someone with possibly investing. And we sent them an email and said, hey, our patent was just awarded. And they replied, oh, forget the investment. We'll acquire you. <laughs> Lehman had such a positive demeanor. And that got me thinking, were there any moments where he felt down? Or does he always have this abundance of positivity? Oh, no, no. It's very depressing to fail. I wouldn't recommend failing. But I would recommend understanding you're going to fail a lot. And, you know, you, you cry and get over it. And you cry and get up and you skid your knee, you put a band-aid on it, and you go on, you know? Uh, you, you, can't, you can't let that stop you. Uh, and that's a very important thing. If, if you wouldn't want to be an entrepreneur if you can't handle failure, that would, that would be bad. But you want to do everything you possibly can to avoid the failure. And over time, you actually get better at avoiding failure, which is a good thing. So no, I'm not always positive. I'm, I'm unhappy when things go badly. 
but I don't let it stop me. And this is the important thing. Um, in the Air Force, you always hear that courage is not a lack of fear. It's being willing to go ahead even when you are afraid. And I would say something similar in, uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, courage isn't a lack of fear. Some entrepreneurs are a lack of fear. There's actually a high percentage of psychopaths in the entrepreneurial field and in politics. Um, and that can be an asset, but it can also be a, a liability. Uh, but if you're a normal person, yeah, fear is fine. And being unhappy about failure is fine. But don't allow it to stop you. You've got to keep going. That's the key. That's the key. You just got to keep going. I asked Lehman, is there any tricks or tips that he's learned to help him in the face of failure? Actually, I would say other people are important. So having a business partner like Mance has been very good. Having a very supportive family has been good. I have lots and lots of nephews and nieces that are good. I have lots of friends that are good. Uh, surround yourself with people that are positive and that are on your side. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't spend a lot of time with the kinds of people that are just complaining about everything in the world. That's, that's going to bring you down. Even if they're friendly to you, if you're just complaining about life, that's going to bring you down. And you really, you want to find people that are going to be able to work with you and to support you and to um, encourage you and uh, and remind you, yeah, you fell, but you know, that's what happens and I'm, it's okay. Uh, that's helpful. So human connection is important, I think. And then also just, just do it. <laughs> just keep going. I've heard people sometimes talk about how they're not quite sure if they're on the cusp of solving a problem and if they should keep going with it versus knowing when it's time to pivot. How did Lehman know there was time to make a change? <laughs> That's true for every major question. Should I even start this company? You know, having a good idea does not mean a good company. You can have the best widget in the world, but, but unless it is fundamentally something that people need and is a need that is not being met, you should not start a widget company. So you, from, from the very beginning, the question is, how do I know I should start a company on this idea? You really should be going for ideas that are not being met and that are a real need. And then you say, well, should I pivot? And you say, who should I hire? Boy, it's important. The number one most important thing in a company is who you hire. You've got to have a good team. If you have a good team, you can sell any widget. If you have a bad team, it doesn't matter what you have. You'll never sell it. You can invent a perpetual motion machine and you'll never make a company out of it. Um, by the way, that's impossible. I know there's people online that say it's impossible. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> so the specific question you asked was pivot, but it's true for all of them. And the answer is you gather all the information you can. You talk to everyone you can. You ponder what's happened in the previous life. You look at your experience. You look at the deadline. When realistically should I make this decision? Do not wait past the deadline. And when you get to the fork in the road and you reach the point where you have to make a decision, you decide. And do not agonize over whether it was right or wrong. You decide and you go forward. And don't, don't worry excessively about it. You will want to look back later and say, can I learn anything from that? I see the other branch of the road would have been better. What could I learn? What can I do better in the future? But do not agonize, oh no, I made a wrong decision. Because when you get to the point where you have to make a decision, well, you have to make a decision. And so you should. And so you just do it. But you take all the precautions you can. You talk to people, you get advice, you ponder, you think about it, you take, you get all the evidence you can. You want to make the most informed decision possible. Don't do it just because it was your idea. Don't do it just because it was your first idea. John Cleese has written amazing things on creativity. And the main takeaway is don't go with your first idea. Keep thinking about it. Um, this is what you need to do. 
when you come to any big decision and pivoting is one of them. Oh, and for those who don't know, pivoting is when you had a business model plan, you're mainly doing this and you realize yeah, but no one actually wants that. Okay, we'll do this. Having succeeded with several companies, I posed the question to Lehman. What was the most important aspect to your success? I have pondered this because I told you, you should look back on things that go wrong. You should also look back on things that go right. Um, <laughs> first of all, it was our number one priority. We have always thought that that's the important part, not the technology, not the business plan, not the, the cool idea. Um, those are necessary. You have to have all these pieces, of course, but the people are the most important piece. So it has always been our very top priority. And we will spend time trying to talk to a person, understand are they a good person or not, but how do you know from a conversation or two? You know, that you can't tell. We'll take someone that we know through someone else, and that gives you more insight. We'll talk to other people that know them, that gives you some more insight. Uh, we will take the good people in our organization, once we've hired a few, and then have them recommend people. And then you get, if you can, hire, if you can manage to hire a few A-level people, then their community of A-level people bring in the next batch of A-level people, and you can grow like that. And the converse is true too. Um, if they're not so good, maybe even if you don't fire them, maybe you don't want to hire their friend. But, but, but we've just been blessed with really good people, and then their social network and their network, and and so on. Um, all of those are it. Um, part of it is there's a lot of random chance, and we have. We did not have the bad things happen that could have happened. And for a potential entrepreneur, I would say do everything you can to succeed. And if it fails, it may just be that that just is a random thing you couldn't control. But put all of your energy into controlling as much as you can. Do everything you can to raise the probability of success. And then maybe, you know, it's a probability, you may not succeed. But do everything you can to raise the probability of success. So we, <laughs> the Hedera blockchain, the DLT, the Hedera DLT, the ledger, is a project that started off with just Swirls, and then it grew to six companies. So the way it worked was Hedera or Swirls spun off a subsidiary named Hedera, which was for the purpose of organizing a council, and the council would run the actual ledger. They would they would be in charge of it, and initially even run the computer, but it would always be in charge of it. So then Hedera got its first council members. I think he started with the first batch of five. And it spun out as an independent organization. But Mance and I were in charge. So he's the CEO and CTO of Hedera and chief scientist. So we were in charge of Hedera and we built up Hedera. And then Hedera voted, the council voted, not the CEOs, this council runs it, voted to fund a grant giving organization. So the HR Foundation gives startups these grants. And then they did another one, the Hashgraph Association. And they did another one, the DLT Science Foundation. Distributed Ledger Technology Science Foundation, which is more academic. Uh, so we have three grant giving organizations. Plus we have the council, the LLC kind of manages the council. They arrange meetings for the council. And then we have Swirls, which now is doing nothing. And then we have the sixth one. So after a while we said, you know, this project is now on its feet. There shouldn't be a CEO, it's decentralized. It doesn't make any sense to have a CEO. Mance and I are going to resign from our positions we're going to resign from the board. We will not be employees of, of Hedera. And almost all the employees of Hedera are also going to leave. We're all going to leave. We're all going to go to Swords Labs. And right now we have, I think, 130 people plus contractors in Swords Labs. And Hedera is just a handful of people, you know, a dozen or so people. 
so it's, it's all in Swirls Labs now, but Swirls Labs is separate. So we're decentralizing. And so the two founders are decentralized. We're no longer part of Hedera. We're part of Swirls Labs. Or we're, we don't have any power in Hedera. Uh, Hedera has committees and council members can be, can be chairs of the committees, but the, the real power of Hedera is council. And there's a chair and then there'll be a president, but, um, there is a president, but there's um, the real power in Hedera from the beginning has been the council. Hey, it's Mike. Passive income is one of this year's hottest buzzwords, but what is it? Well, passive income is when the elite make money and the rest of us sleep. Here at Norhart, we decided to open up this opportunity to everyone by giving you the chance to invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates without doing a thing. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and see what you can build towards. This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. From the beginning, once you got five thousand members, originally we just rolled. Uh, and so, so we have 130 employees plus some contractors in Swirls Labs. We have three, three people maybe that are just in two, just in Swirls. There's a dozen or so in Hedera LLC. There's 29 council members, each of which is like a Fortune 100 countries company somewhere in the world. So you know who knows how many each council member may have 10,000 employees. I don't know what the average is. Uh, and then the three grant giving organizations. Uh, I can't even imagine how many employees um, DSF has because they're they're an academic thing. They are using the employees of multiple universities. I don't know how many actual employees they have. And the same with the two grant, other grant giving organizations. By the way, the fact that I can't answer that question is a good sign. It shows that we're decentralized. I am not in control of those. I have never been in control of those from the day they existed. And they do what they want. And I don't even know how many employees they have. I know the names of some of their employees, but I don't know how many employees they have. Let's just take a moment here. Lehman has started a company to solve an interesting problem. But there's a big difference between solving a math problem and creating a company that provides a solution to a world changing problem. How does someone feel about that? And what is that even like? Yeah, so that was fun. Um, I solved the math problem because I like math problems. That was just purely fun. But once I saw the solution, I said, wow, that's powerful. That could actually make people's lives better. That could change the world in a way that everybody would be able to do things cheaper, faster, more secure, and even do things they couldn't do today. And we can talk about that, but blockchain really, DLTs have the ability to go in. Ledgers, I keep hearing become part of every part of society. They are spreading right now. Uh, just like the internet is part of every part of society, every business, every school, every club, every piece of our economy, our government, everything uses the internet. Same thing is gonna be true for ledgers. So, so when we saw, this is powerful. This is really powerful. This could really change the world and make things better for people. Manson I then said, okay, let's start a company. And we will sell, have a company to sell these distributed ledgers. We'll do it as um, private ledgers initially. And so initially it wasn't open source. It was you know closed source. Today it's open source, but then it was closed source. Uh, actually it was open review at some point. Anyone could read the code, but they couldn't steal it because it was, we were trying to start a company. Later that changed. 
uh, when, we, when we became really decentralized. But initially it was, it was that. And then we decided to start Squirrels. And for me, it was easy. I was working part-time as a research scientist in labs and consulting for people. And, you know, that was fun, but I was ready to start another real business. I, I was, it was time. Um, I was tired of not having businesses. I wanted to start another one. Uh, for Manson, it was a harder question. And he's told this story before. He tells it better than I do, but it was just amazing. He was a high-ranking person in, in uh, ping identity. And he, um, he realized that he was going to need to quit and go start this new company uh, because this was a big thing. It, was, it, would be, it would be a shame to just stay in your current company and keep moving up the ranks and not take advantage of this really cool thing. And so he arranged for a talk to the CEO, who got on his calendar. He walks into the CEO's office and the CEO said, wait, before you say anything, I want to offer you our top VP position because he knew that Mance was going to give him bad news. <laughs> and, and so he said to Mance, okay, do you want to quit and start a company? Or, oh, I'm sorry. Mance first had to tell him, I want to quit and start a company. Mance started presenting this company. And he got just a couple of slides into his deck. And the CEO said, stop. Let me record this on my phone. I think this is a historic moment. And so then we get to the end. And Matt says, I want to quit and start a company. And the, the CEO said, but I really want you to take my top VP position. Make a choice. Right now, are you going to quit or do you want to take this top position I can offer you? And Matt had to decide in that moment. But of course, the decision is one that you've really made in advance. Um, fire pilots, they say that whether you're going to bail out of a plane or not, it's a decision you have to make in advance. You can't make it during the fraction of a second. And Matt told him, sorry, this is too good to pass up. And the guy said, yeah, I thought you'd say that. Let me invest. <laughs> uh, so this was great. And so we had our first investor. We went off and got other investors. Actually, I negotiated that deal because Mance is sort of a conflict of interest there. I negotiated that investment. And then we had other investors. And we started. And we hired employees. And we built software. And uh, we built this up. We sold it to the credit union industry and to other people. And then um, in, that was in 2015, the very end that we started this. And then by summer of 2016, less than a year later, we presented it to the world at a conference. And at that conference, Mance and I went to a Brazilian steakhouse and we were sitting down over a good meal. And we said, you know what? If you wanted to have a public DLT, a blockchain in the normal sense, not private, the right way to do it would be to have a council and have decent governance. Really, that's the right way to do it. And if you don't do that from the beginning, you can never retroactively get a good governance. It's too hard to change the structure. You really need to start with a council. And the council has to not just be anybody. It has to be the very top people in the world. And so we said, should we do that? Should we try to start a company to do that? And try to go cold call the top, top, top companies and universities and organizations in the world? Yeah, let's do it. And so we decided. Summer 2016. Um, that was probably stupid. There's no chance of getting good. I mean, look at it. How are you going to get good, good um, organizations? And by spring of 2017, we were announcing to the world that we have our first five council members, including IBM and fully, fully big companies that had agreed to be on our council. And uh, it was just, it just went from there. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a good question. Um, 
with lots of effort. <laughs> but from deciding to do it until our announcement, you know, a fraction of a year, uh, we we had good people helping us to talk to them. We had gained traction already in the, the private ledger market. We had really good technology. So the technology is actually fundamentally better in some ways than everything else. And you have math proofs of it. We have a professor at Carnegie Mellon that actually got a computer to check the math proof, which is really hard to do. Only a handful of people on the planet are smart enough to do that, and he is. Carl Crary is smart enough to do that. Um, and so we had, we had some ammunition, but boy, it was just crazy to think we could do such a thing. Um, and so the team did. Uh, I'm amazed. We hired a really good team, and the team managed to do this. Mance and I talked to them. The team talked to them. And these are forward-looking companies. So these are not companies that are stuck in the mud and they're, they're still making buggy whips in the era of cars. These are companies that were looking to the future. And they said, you know what? This DLT stuff is the future. We have a blockchain group that's involved in trying to figure out DLTs. We would like ourselves to build on top of this new thing, and we'd like to be part of steering where it goes, and we plan to build on top of it. And so we got them to join. And once the first five had joined, people knew the names, their eyes watered how good those names are, and then we got other big names. And just the, the rest is just, I don't know if you know who they are. We have IBM, like I said, and Google, and LG Electronics, and the biggest bank in all of Africa, and the oldest bank in all of South Korea, and one of the biggest financial firms in uh, Japan. And we had the biggest telecom in all of Europe. And we have three of the top 10 universities in the world, uh, different ways of measuring top 10, but three universities of that caliber. Uh, we just have an amazing group of, of organizations spread across all the continents except Antarctica. We'll work on that one. Um, but they're spread all over the place. And, and really, the first five was the hardest. Uh, as you might imagine, that got the ball rolling. And then it got easier and then it got easier. And now we have 29 and we're still growing. So as we get toward the end of our podcast, I posed Lehman the following question. What have been some of the bigger challenges he's faced and how did he overcome them? The biggest challenge was starting the console, right? The first five. Um, I still look back on that and think, what was I thinking? How did I think I could actually get council members like IBM or Google or whatever? Uh, that's just insane. Uh, that was certainly the biggest challenge and, uh, and it worked. Um, I guess another biggest challenge was starting Swirls in the first place and getting any traction at all and getting all the investors in that because then we didn't have any track records we could show. All we could say is, I have a cool math paper. I have a patent. Isn't that cool? Um, but we were able to get people that understood the true significance of it that they invested in. <laughs> they had done well. Uh, and so I say getting started was the hardest part, uh, but also just there's this vision for where we're going to be a hundred years from now. And I just want to get there as fast as I can. And so I always feel like it's going slower than I want. I want to go faster than the speed of light. I want to just want to get there. And so the, the other hard thing is the patience of there is so much I want to add, so much I want to do on this network. And, uh, and we're getting there. We're making rapid progress. Uh, but that's the, I'll give you the other challenge is just that. Just how much I want to get done and where we want to end up. As Lehman looks forward, I'm curious, what is his vision for the world? What does our world look like with his technology 100 years from now? So in 100 years, everything of value in the world is going to be tokenized. So what that means is that there will be a representation in ones and zeros of this thing of value, so your house, let's say. Uh, I met a woman recently who tokenized her house on Hedera. So her house, the tokens on Hedera, it's ones and zeros on Hedera. 
Um, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is going to become universally, this will happen eventually. Why would you want to do this? It's the same reason humanity went from storing information on paper and storing it in databases. Uh, it's just so much faster and more secure and more efficient and uh, more convenient for programs to reach out and interact with, all of those things. So what happens when you tokenize your house is that now we can have land registries on a, to on a ledger. So you don't have to do a, a, a title search. If you're buying the house from someone, you don't need a middleman. We're disintermediating. You could just buy it from that person. And you're guaranteed that you will get the house if they get the money. And if they don't get the money, you don't get the house. And if you don't get the house, they don't get the money. It's atomic. You don't need a third party. And you're guaranteed the person you're buying it from actually owns it. If the definition of own is they know the private key, that means they own it. So you get this great security, but you also get speed. You can send a wire, the equivalent of sending a wire to someone in a fraction of a second or you know, a few seconds, whereas today it might take days. And it will cost you a tenth of a cent, whereas today you might pay you know, I don't know, $20 or $30 or something. And I've even heard that it's denominated in dollars when you're sending from South Korea to South Africa. <laughs> the, the wires are denominated in dollars. It's just insane. Um, you eliminate all of that. And you have more security. Uh, it's just it's sort of a, a pure win across the board. It's why people use computers now rather than using mechanical adding machines. It's just a pure win. It also allows you then to create programs that can interact with these things. So people can create markets that are buying and selling these things. And can, people can create more complex things that look at and read the data and interact with it. If it's all on paper or all in, in silos, you can't do that. But if it's all on ledgers, then you can reach out and interact. And so it becomes faster, becomes faster and cheaper and more reliable, and more secure, and it can open up to everybody. Uh, even people in developing nations typically have a cell phone. Sometimes there's only one cell phone per village, but everybody has access to this. And so if you can do this, there's a huge fraction of the world that is unbanked. And some of our banks at our council are really interested in reaching out to the unbanked and helping them to be able to do banking services without you know, being a traditional banking customer. And you have problems with identity and you have problems with um, transportation and you have problems with authentication and all of these we are working on and we can use lenders as part of the solution to take the billion people this earth that are not banked and, and help them to become banked and then you can help them with micro loans and they can do micro loans using your chicken as a collateral because they have tokenized it and there's a smart contract that now will take that collateral and give you a tiny bit of loan all sorts of things that are possible today. You have Calixty, which is a company, um, Spencer did when he started it. He's a famous athlete, you know, a basketball player. He started this to help creators tokenize their things. And he's done things like tokenize his own future salary. And, um, and he allows you to do things you wouldn't even imagine. You don't just use tokens to buy things, you can use them to buy influence. So you could buy the ability to vote on what shoes he will wear at the next game. Apparently, this is a huge collector's industry, his shoes, and people really care which shoes he's wearing at the next game because then it becomes a collector's item and you can buy the shoes too. Or you can even buy the right to have lunch with somebody famous. Uh, there's all sorts of things that you can do when you have tokens. And so that's all tokens are. They're just a representation in a ledger of something in the real world. But I think everything is going to be tokenized because then everything in the real world can be um, easily sent back and forth. Games. You have resources in your game, so you, you spend a thousand hours and you get the magic sword, but the game designer could just delete your sword, or they can make it less powerful, they could nerf it, okay, all sorts of bad things. And how do you take that sword to another game? 
And how do you take the, the outfit you got in one game and then wear it in another game or your avatar's appearance in one game and wear it in another game? Wouldn't it be great if those were all tokenized and then you'd have markets and then they have transferability. And so you could take it to a new game and prove that you're the real owner and they have it on you. You could even have designer watches and handbags and so on in the game where every other player has their computer automatically, cryptographically check the validity. Is it real or is it a knockoff? And so it doesn't just have a brand name on it that's good. Their computer is telling them, oh, yeah, that person really does have an expensive accessory in this VR world that they actually paid real money for. And there's a huge market for that. People really want that sort of thing. That's amazing. That sounds like the kind of future I am excited for. Finally, I asked Lehman, what advice would he give his younger self? Yeah, do that thing you've been doing. <laughs> uh, works out pretty well. So if we imagine I'm re reliving my life and all the dice get rolled again, so then, you know, maybe none of these things would work. Maybe I would have been an entrepreneur who never had a successful company. That's absolutely possible. I would say, yeah, do it anyway and try to learn from it. Um, these problems I've been working on, I wouldn't have to tell my younger self. If you never solve it, you should still work on it. Um, I wouldn't even say you should. It's just, I'm wired that way. It's just really fun. So I plan to work on the coax problem until the day I die. And I guarantee you I will never solve that. I don't care. It's fun. I just love Lehman's passion, energy, and drive for solving really amazing problems in society. And it's clearly having a positive impact. Lehman is not only a visionary, but a true genius. His work changes what we know about the world. And just think about that for a second. We all want to change the world, but Lehman does. And he does it with regularity. Just let that sink in. Thank you for listening. Keep following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you like, recommend us to a friend.